Hi, Dr. Ray. I love your show. Let me show you what it looks like to be a holy person, and maybe you'll want to be holy like me. You just patted yourself on the back. You seem like an honest guy. But you're a psychologist. Do you have some advice? I don't know. I'm not going to tell you what to do. You're my second favorite Italian person. I think you have a way of making people feel relaxed. She needs to feel the consequences of being a jerk. No, I was looking for a deeper answer. Obviously, I'm a failure. Obviously, I'm inept. You are awesome. Keep up the good fight, my friend. Now, from the studios of Living Bread Radio Network in Canton, Ohio, the hometown of Mother Angelica, here's Dr. Ray. Very nice to be here. Very, very nice to be here. Ah, it's very, very, very nice to be here. Triple. You know, in in Scripture, especially in the uh, Hebrew languages, um... They didn't have necessarily superlatives, so they said, holy, holy, holy. They wanted to emphasize. So I just want to say very, very, very pleased to be with you here. This is E-Person Monday. It's the Monday variant of The Doctor Is In, where I take a look at the emails I receive. Now, some of those emails I do not have to go over because I recommend to the folks, can you please call the program and I will ask some questions. Get some particulars about this. Uh, what percentage would I say do that? And maybe a quarter. Maybe that's not a percentage. It's a fraction. A quarter. Maybe a quarter. I would always be curious to know what the other three quarters don't. I, the, the main reason, if I'm going to extrapolate from the first few lines of uh, an e-person, often I'd like to call in, but. Uh, People I know listen, and they would recognize my voice, (laughs) which I would want to say, well, I have to be very careful then about reading your e-person, because they might recognize your situation. But nevertheless, uh, that stack grows, that e-person stack grows, and I sometimes feel rather sheepish and somewhat guilty when I look at an e-person that I bring up on the program here, and I see the date five months ago as it was someplace in the stack or in the phone scroll. But I'll do my very best to get to some of those. This article here says, more than 3.5 billion, with a B, people worldwide. Now, let me stop myself right there. I would think they would say something like, more than 3.5 billion people worldwide have a smartphone. That's nearly half the world's estimated population. Somewhere between 7 and 8 billion. Every time I say billion, I think of Carl Sagan. Billions and billions. But it doesn't say that. More than 3.5 billion people worldwide spend an average of three hours a day glued to their smartphones. On social media, texting, checking emails. See, okay, I suspect that particular stat. What, Dr. Ray? You've often talked about how much smartphones can do all kinds of social damage to your relationships, to your life, to your raising your kids. Yes. However, I receive on... I think it's Sunday. You spent 12.6% more time 
on your smartphone uh, this last week, averaging 2.72 hours. Yes, but the vast majority of that time was listening to music or podcasts. Or the radio. Listening to the apps that many of our, our affiliates and our stations and EWTN and Abe have on an app. So that they count that as time on the phone. This morning I was doing some work on a, a book I'm working on and I put my, my favorite 60s, 70s, and 80s hits, Pandora. Well, that thing ran for two hours. So no matter what I do the rest of today, I've already got two hours on that smartphone. But I'm digressing, I'm digressing, I'm digressing. Let's just assume, and what is amazing to me though, 3.5 billion, that, does, that, does that mean a lot of people in China have smartphones? I, I'm going to assume they do. 1.4 billion people in China. And with the way the government monitors their breathing, I would, I would wonder exactly how that works. But I digress again. According to a German study, there is good reason to cut down. <laughs> well, that's a shocker. <laughs> really? We had to have a study telling us there is good reason to cut down? Researchers found that people who lowered their usage by one hour every day, one hour, so that's one-third of the time, were happier, spent more time being physically active, were less depressed, and reduced anxiety by more than 30%. I guess you could probably break that study down and see not just this global generalized amount of time, but what kind of time. Are they on news feeds? You cut back an hour on a news feed, I figure you're going to cut your anxiety back. There's no question about that. Are they on social media? Oh, social media does all kinds of stuff to the way you look at life, the way you look at other people. I've had people that I know say, those other families, they all just look so good. And I said, yeah, they're Facebook families. Are you kidding me? Every family on Facebook is Hallmark. I know, but I look at that and they see where they went on vacation as a family and they're all smiling on the beach. And, and then they had this one picture where they were out to dinner and the kids were all waving. Yeah? Okay. Well, that's the stuff they want to put up there. They're not going to put up a picture of their seven-year-old sobbing his guts out because his brother just kicked over this puzzle he'd been working on for the last two hours. I'm going to put that up there. So I could see, <clears throat> if you cut back on this stuff, you get out of fantasy land. But it says you're physically active. Well, that's true. I mean, you're gonna. What are you gonna do? You're gonna do something. Assuming you don't take that time and bring it over to the other screen, the big 82-inch screen, or the computer screen. And now this is this was the interesting perspective on this. Cutting back was more effective than total detox. Now, what they mean is, you take an hour away every day. That leads to more benefits 
than if you simply said, okay, this week I'm not going to look at my phone at all. That's interesting. People who spent one hour less per day during one week were more likely to change their habits over the long term than abstainers who put the smartphones away for a week. Okay, that's all the detail they give us, but I think this is what they're saying. If you do that for one week, if you cut back one hour, or let's just say a percentage, you you say to yourself, Dr. Ray, I don't spend three hours a day on a smartphone. And if I ever have that tally, it's because I've been listening to EWTN app, or it's because I have been listening to me on the phone. Okay, then then try to get a gauge of how much time you spend texting, social media, uh, and emails. Get a gauge. Cut that in half. And the way to, the easiest way to do that is is to probably during the day have periods of time uh, from nine to noon. I'm not going to look at anything, you know. Then from noon to one, I'll I'll check. From four to six, nothing. That's the easiest way to probably do it. They said. Now this is what the study said. This is interesting, and I I can speculate why that might be. They said that if you do that for one week, just one week, they said, as opposed to saying, I'm going to not look at, touch, smell, anything on that phone for one week, that you, in fact, have more long-term benefits. And I think the reason for that would be is that you put into place, perhaps, some habits that are more durable. Now, one might say, but but why doesn't that happen when you cut it out for a whole week and you have nothing else to do, wouldn't those habits then start up and linger and root? I'm going to speculate. The instant you go back to the phone, you go back to it as hot and heavy as you did prior to your week off. When you cut back, you still had the phone. But you showed yourself, I can live within the boundaries of this phone that I set. Now, that'd be my guess. Now, obviously, this little tiny tiny synopsis of the article doesn't talk about that. But in any research study, they have to have a discussion section. And the discussion, I would think, would talk about why that might be. Why that tapering is better than total detox for a week. Fascinating. When we come back, diving into the emails. Are you through? No. I'm doing society a favor. So? Dr. Ray has more great advice coming up. Don't go anywhere. When the need for senior care arises, home is where the heart is. Visiting Angels provides home care for mom or dad up to 24 hours per day, including personal care, meals, and light housework. You may select your professional caregiver with Visiting Angels. More information at visitingangels.com or at 877-374-LIVE. That's 877-374-LIVE. Visiting Angels, America's choice in senior home care. 
How does the Catholic Church treat divorced Catholics who have remarried outside the Church? The Catechism tells us that the Catholic community must give attentive solicitude to Catholics who are divorced and remarried in a civil ceremony. Since their marriage is against the command of Jesus, they may not receive communion. They may, however, and should be encouraged to listen to the Word of God, attend the sacrifice of the Mass, persevere in prayer, raise their children in the Catholic faith, cultivate the spirit of penance, and implore day by day God's grace. Thus it follows, if a friend or family member marries outside the church, we do not abandon them to no faith or another faith. We encourage them to remain a member of the church's family. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. You're listening to Ave Maria Radio. Ave Maria Radio. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. Very nice to have you with me, Dr. Ray Garendi. The program here, The Doctor is In. All right, let's see what we got on this E-Person Monday variant of The Doctor is In. Over to there, over to there. Let's see what Carolyn has to say here. Our adult son has picked up the habit of saying... J.C. or O.M.G. Needless to say, Dr. Ray, he does not abbreviate when he is angry and frustrated. At Thanksgiving, he and his family were here. I was determined to say something. Okay, now let me stop right there. Unfortunately, We all operate under the assumption that if we address something that is bothersome to us, that the person that we address is going to hear our reasoning, understand it, and then perhaps change. Now, that's the best case scenario. It's not because I'm a psychologist. It's because, well, I guess it's because interacting with people in some respect, either in in or out of the office, has been my life. And unfortunately, what I've found is the longer that someone has had a habit that is distressing to you, the less likely they will respond positively when you address it. Now, that's not to say you don't address it once. You can address it once. Where many relationships start to fracture is that you keep addressing it. Rather than recognizing that this person is not going to change that, and your attempts to address it have only made it worse, because they've gotten defensive or angry, or you too, and you keep addressing it. 
And that's what it causes problems. Now, our writer here said she was going to address it. Now, I wonder if she has before. I imagine she's probably given off some kind of signals. Like, ooh, ow, ouch. All right. At Thanksgiving, he and his family was here. I was determined to say something. <laughs> but it looks like she she chickened out. She said, the only thing I accomplished was an elbow to his arm when he said J.C. while we were playing a game. All right. So she's figuring, all right, I haven't, I haven't really said too much. Now, <clears throat> okay, forgive me for this, but this is a little bit of what I was talking about in the stack of the E-persons because obviously I can't get to all of them in a timely way. He will be here over the holidays. I am debating whether to pull him aside early in their visit to tell him that this is upsetting to me. And then she put in parentheses, and to the Lord, which is good, which is good that she said that because all too often we say, well, you know what you're doing upsets me. I, I'm reminded I'm reminded of a youth pastor who told the story of buying a car. And the fella peppered his language in the negotiations with all kinds of colorful words to use a euphemism. He, at one point, asked the pastor, what do you do for a living? He said, I'm a, I'm a youth pastor. The guy immediately said, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I wouldn't have talked like that. And the youth pastor said, in essence, well, you don't have to worry about offending me. I'm not the one that you're talking about like that. So, I thought it was a very very good point. Dr. A, I'm really a coward when it comes to talking about such things with him because I don't know what kind of reaction I'll get. You are absolutely right. You don't know what kind of reaction you'll get. But here's the thing. You know your son. How does he respond to somebody giving him feedback about something he does? How does he respond to it? Is he generally kind of, I didn't know I did that, I'm sorry, I don't mean to do that, I'll try to do better. Oh, wow, okay. Or is it, uh, what are you doing, what are you telling me this stuff for? You know, you do a lot of the same things. Or whatever other defensive remarks are going to come from it. He might be humble and say he'll try. Or he might laugh it off and subtly accuse me of virtue signaling. Isn't it interesting? It's not. It's so good how much our modern cultural lingo makes people who have some kind of morals as virtue signaling. You know, if you say that uh, living together is wrong before marriage, why, you're virtue signaling? All right. He, she says, I can see either reaction coming from him. Well, okay, then apparently, if you can see that, then you've had those kinds of reactions in the past. Or you've seen him react that way to other people. So, you're flipping a coin. I know his wife has talked to him in the past about his cursing. Okay, now his, now his, his wife has talked to him about this. Apparently, he hasn't stopped, right? I think she has more influence than you. I'm going to assume. 
he's acknowledged that it's not ideal, but not much has changed. Any words of wisdom for increasing my courage would also be appreciated. Well, you can increase your courage if you're not worried about how he's going to react. See, you're thinking, I want to tell him if he's going to react okay. Well, you already said you can't know that. So, if you want to tell him, I think a lot of it is going to be wrapped around the way you tell him. For example, you could say, you're not disrespecting me. But, you are disrespecting God. And he's, he's, probably someone you, you you should be more concerned about disrespecting than me. I think that's the way to put it. You don't want to put it like, I don't like that. Because he could look at you and say, well, that's all. Okay, there's a lot of things you do I don't like. But if you frame it in the context of, and I'm going to assume he believes in God, so you frame it as if to say, you're being disrespectful to God. And then I would probably say something like that. If you want to do that, go ahead. Just thought I'd bring it up. Because I don't think he thinks he's being disrespectful to God. It may it may simply just be a habit that he's gotten into. Okay? All right. I'm too nervous to call your radio show, Dr. Ray. Yeah, this is probably the second most common one. People will say, I'm nervous. But interestingly enough, as I've talked about on past shows, danger and distress are two different things. You can be nervous, but it's not dangerous to call this show. It's not dangerous as it would be if you're walking in a very, very risky neighborhood. No, you're just kind of calling me, which is risky to some people. <clears throat> but I'm emailing you. Our daughter, age 23, has had nightmares as far back as she can remember. She has them most nights. Usually she's getting hunted or someone is threatening her. She does have anxiety and she overthinks things and maybe some OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. She's never suffered any traumatic event in her life that might explain the nightmares. What is causing these? Is there anything that can be done? Thank you. Um, okay. I really... see Now, see when I said okay, that was dumb. Because I was stalling for time. There was no reason I had to say okay. But that was just to, to buy time so there isn't silence. I've noticed that. In a lot of conversations, even in a lot of presentations... People use a lot of filler words because silence somehow is uncomfortable. It's not dangerous. I would want to know more about these habits that she has in terms of overthinking, overanalyzing, etc. Because my guess would be that she thinks about this when she's laying in bed at night. And you are likely, more likely to have dreams that somehow are a twist and turn of your thoughts before going to bed or during the day. Also, 
I remember way back in grad school, I was I always had a fascination with parasomnias. Parasomnias are basically s- troubles related to sleeping. Nightmares of threat can be the most scary of nightmares. And one of the techniques that we read about was instructing the person Oh, you're gonna have to hey, you're gonna have to stay through the break to hear the answer. Isn't this tricky? It's kinda like they do on TV, you know? They end that particular episode making you have to come back to see exactly what the answer was. Nice to have you with me. One of the problems here in taking these e-persons off my phone is that right now I'm looking at a phone call. So I have to wait. I mean, I want to I want to push decline, but it's a friend. Uh, so I don't want to make a friend feel like, yeah, he's dropping my phone call. So I had to let it ring all the way through to go back. Now, the email I was... Reading before the break. Where is that? It was twelve fourteen? There we go. Come here. This was about a mom asking about her daughter, twenty-three, who has had threatening nightmares far back as she can remember. Mom describes her personality as anxious, overthinking, maybe some obsessive-compulsive matters. No obvious trauma. What could be going on? Well, one of the things is that, as I alluded to in the be- just before the break, uh, if you are preoccupied with a lot of scary thoughts or anxious thoughts or provocative thoughts about your, I don't want to say safety, but about maybe threats that you feel life presents in its various circumstances then those are more likely to get translated into your dreams. We tend to dream about what we're preoccupied with. Secondly, if you're in bed at night and bedtime is a half an hour or 45 minutes or however long before you finally stop thinking about some of these things that you tend to overthink about, those can be incorporated. They are immediately right next to your dreams in the night anyway when you get to that state of sleep that they'll get incorporated. Third, and as I said, this was this was a technique that was given to us when I was in grad school, and it uh, was something that I found fascinating as I did some research on parasomnias or sleep problems. When you have a threatening dream, something that is... Uh, really nasty and you are afraid it's going to occur again, one of the first things you have to do is you have to not worry about it occurring again. You have to develop an attitude of, if it happens, it happens. So what? It's a dream. Big deal. Because I think what's happening here is this young lady is 
is now terrified of having a terrifying dream. And that's like feedback. When a microphone is too close to its speaker, it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Screams. The first thing she needs to do is to recognize that these dreams are in part being kept alive because she's afraid of having them. If she can calm herself down, think herself down, say to herself, if I have it, I have it. It's not anything I need to fear. If she can get that through her head, because I, I would bet right now she's living in a lot, and she has lived for a long time, in a, when will these ever go away? Well, they always plague me all my life. This is horrible. I don't even like to go to sleep because I don't know what I'm going to dream. As long as that is up and running, the dreams are more likely. Now, one of the examples we were given was a recurrent dream of being chased by a dog, a fearsome dog. The therapist gave the suggestion to the person before going to sleep that they simply develop a strategy to deal with the dog whether that strategy is to turn around and growl, whether that strategy is to have some kind of protective device in their hand that the dog will back off, whether the strategy is picture yourself getting to your house in plenty of time. Whatever the strategy is, try to implant that strategy into your brain by thinking about it. In the hopes, and maybe the likelihood, that it will be implanted into your dream as part of the solution to the threat. I think that that would help. But again, if you are a normally overthinking, anxious person about a lot of things, then it makes sense that what you're concerned about is going to be implanted in your unconscious and expressed itself in a dream. For years and years and years, I, as well as many of you, have probably had the dream of going to class in college and being totally unprepared. It's the ninth week of the semester. You never read one page in the book. Or you are clueless as to what's going on in terms of some kind of technical course. I had that dream for years and years and years. I don't have it too much anymore. Now, I think there's a couple reasons for that. One, I am far away from college. A lot farther than I (laughs) want to be. But that's the way it is. Time moves forward. Latin tempus fudget. So given that, that dream is somewhat faded. It's not as recurrent as it was. But the other explanation is that it has been replaced. That's right. Since 19... Oh, boy. 1970-something, late in the 80s. I was very young, but I coached men's softball. And I coached it for 40 years. The last 15 or 20 years of coaching, which I just finished a year ago. I don't coach anymore. It's too hard. Much harder than therapy. One of the big problems was reliability of guys. Always looking into the parking lot. 
to see if the tenth man was coming. Always wondering why this guy didn't call you to tell you he wasn't going to be there. Always not wanting to pick up the phone on the day of a game because you knew it was somebody saying, we got enough guys. Because, uh, uh, yeah, I, I decided I want to sit out on my patio tonight. Or whatever the excuse was. Just a dramatic decline in reliability. So for years and years and years and years, the main frustration of coaching was making sure guys would be there. My new dream now, and I've had a lot of them since, is that I'm either in a game or tournament, and it's game time and there's six guys there. Or it's game time and... These guys don't know where the field is. They didn't They didn't find out where the field is. Or it's game time, but they don't know what the game time was because they never called me and I tried to get a hold of them and I couldn't get a hold of them. That's my new dream now. It has replaced college. And to tell you the truth, it's kind of a sad commentary on my educational abilities. That dream causes me more anxiety than the college dream did. I could at least maybe drop the course. Maybe. If it wasn't past the drop ad date. But the ball game? It's in two minutes. Real nice to have you with me. Real nice to be here. Brutal job. Sometimes I have to reach all the way around this microphone to get my Coke. Yeah, but I'm not one to complain. For me, it's all about perseverance and commitment. Excuse me while I take a drink. Thank you. E-Person Monday. My 42-year-old nephew has not had a job since his mom died Two years ago. Well, my first question on that would be, what what was it about his mom's death that he stopped working? Was he working before that? Was mom supporting him? Was he on again, off again? My guess would be it was on again, off again, and mom stepped in to the breach. His dad, my brother, died eight years ago. Okay, here's the answer to my question. As I've oftentimes said, when I when I pick out an E person, um, I I forget where the E person goes. I picked it out because I read it and I thought it would be something to address on the program, but I don't remember where it goes. And I and I like to speculate in between the lines as I move down the E person, and then when I find out in the latter part of the E person. <clears throat> that indeed I was wrong or I was right. And this line confirms it. He does odd jobs for me and a few others. I've paid for much of his groceries, his dog food, and I've paid his electric bill for about 18 months. It is highly unlikely. 
unless there is some kind of serious trauma. Now, one might say, well, his mother's death might have been the serious trauma. But it is highly unlikely for somebody at age 42 to become irresponsible overnight. In the normal course of things. No particular illness, no emotional breakdown of some type that's neurochemically related. So my guess would be, if I asked our writer here, has this been his lifelong style and he was sustained by his mother and his father? She would say yes. He has more excuses than anyone. I've always shown him compassion. But I'm wanting to give him a piece of my mind. I fear it will cause me to sin if I tell him my feelings. I don't think that's the main issue here. Forgive me for using issue. I try to avoid it, except when I'm talking about the April issue of Modern Tank Repair. When you say you've shown compassion, I'm assuming you mean you've supported him financially. His groceries, his dog food, his electric bill. So you've been you've been supporting this guy. Okay, and you've labeled that compassion. For the moment we won't discuss whether that's compassion or not, because oftentimes that kind of thing is not compassion at all. It is just enabling someone to live a very irresponsible and self destructive existence. I want to give him a piece of my mind. Why? If you think that giving him a piece of your mind... Don't give him too big a piece now. If you think that giving him a piece of your mind is going to make him straighten up, I would suspect the odds are dramatically against that. If you want to give him a piece of your mind because you feel used, or you feel betrayed, then I guess you can... But if you want to give him a piece of your mind to straighten him out, I don't think that's going to be heard. I think if your intent is to straighten him out by giving him a piece of your mind, then you better couple it with something. You better couple it with decisions about how much more you're going to support him like that. I'm I'm hearing, and that's a bad way to that's a bad way to put it when I'm reading. Maybe I should say I'm reading you say that you you hope and think that this this could make him act more grown up, more responsible at age forty two. He's not twenty two, he's forty two. So a lot of this is probably long, long standing lifestyle. He got away with it when his parents were alive. Now you're the one that's taking care of him, at least in part. You say, I'm afraid it will cause me to sin. Well, it depends Depends how you tell him. Scream at him. If you call him names. If you insult him, if you put him down. Yeah, it's probably not the way to handle it. But if you say, I think I'm being used. I think that you're not actually wanting to make your situation better and you're relying on other people to support you, well, that's not a sin. It's not a sin at all. 
That's just talking reality. But, you know, just as an aside, I, I, I see a lot of Christians who think that it is being negative and critical by talking reality. I've noticed that. They won't say that uh, my son is taking advantage of the situation because, well, that's negative. Now, granted, this, I'm not dealing with detraction here, telling somebody something they have no right to know. I'm talking about just sizing up the reality of the situation. If I had to, if I had to always speak positively, I couldn't be a psychologist. Because so much of what I have to say to people is not stuff they want to hear. Stuff that could make them mad. The only thing I can work upon is work on is my style in doing it, and I think our writer here can can tell him what she thinks and feels as long as she tells him without attacking him. But if she thinks that's going to change anything, I'm highly doubtful. Uh, if I was out of Vegas, I don't know what's the odds I'd put on that. Eighty to one, be my odds. Now, if she wants to say it to, quote-unquote, get it off her chest that he's been taking advantage of her for 18 months, she could do that. It's not a sin to do that. It's a sin to be nasty about it, and it is also kind of pie in the sky, 80 to 1, to think it's going to make any difference with him. Dr. Ray. My dad, sharp as a tack, but getting him out for a dentist trip got harder every year. When he moved to the senior residence where he lives now, Dr. Mansoor's portable dental service was a godsend. Dr. Mansoor comes to wherever the homebound patient may be, whether in a nursing facility or the comfort of home. All the services you'd expect in a dentist office brought straight to the patient's door. Call 586-873-5567. That's 586-873-5567 or portabledentalservices.com. Fire on the earth, Peter Herbeck. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. And one of the things that he meant by that was the Christian people understand the larger story that's unfolding in history. So as St. Paul said, as the saints echoed very clearly, we're now living through just a, a short moment, a slight momentary affliction, he calls it, in this life, which is going to make way and lead us to an eternal glory beyond all compare. The secret to the fruitfulness and the strength of the apostles was that they lived with a clear vision of the future, an eternal perspective, fixed on the destiny of where their life was headed. And they lived with the realization that, wow, yeah, life is very short here. Everything is temporary. Nothing here in this world is ultimately going to last except the ultimate destinies the eternal destinies of every human being that exists on the earth. And they knew that whether good things were coming their way or bad things from the world's perspective were coming away, nothing could steal from them, nothing could take away the gold that was in their heart, the treasure that they bore. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Peter Herbeck spreads fire on the earth, weekday mornings at 6.30 and again at 11.45 on 990 Ave Maria Radio.
Thank you for joining me. When we do the program, typically we have certain rules as to which folks can jump the line. If they disagree with me, they go to the front. If they've been on a past show at the end of the program on the line waiting patiently, they go straight to the front when they call back again. And then I have a few informal ones. Uh, for example, if, uh, if they're complimentary, don't get too many of those, but when we do, I get all excited about it. But then, also if they uh, are, re- are requesting a book recommendation. So I'm going to extrapolate those rules to this E-Person Monday. Dr. Ray, what book might you suggest? (laughs) As soon as I see that, I'm thinking, okay, all right, a book sale. Might you suggest for a parent, now I'm thinking, okay, parent, i got about four or five books for parents, but then the age kicked in. With a 19-year-old living at home who takes... Little responsibility. Now, now, the writer says, who seems to take. <coughs> Excuse me. Would it be seems to take or in fact takes? I think, I think the writer's trying to be nice. Who takes little responsibility for daily operation of the home. Does not seem to understand. <coughs> Excuse me again. I'm going to take a little sip here. It is their responsibility to be working toward a plan to buy their own car and to pay their own way. Well, the first thing I would say is, um, <clears throat> when you said does not seem to understand, even if we get rid of the seem, if we say does not understand, I still would disagree. I think your 19-year-old understands totally. I think, and I'm going to use he, I don't know if it's a male or female, I think he doesn't agree or that he has different priorities and helping around the house is not one of them or a job or a car. So what you're saying is, how do I, because you asked what book. Now, books of the self-help genre are supposed to tell you how to solve problems. So... If you're asking for a book, you're asking, how do I get this child to understand that he needs to be more cooperative in our home now that he's 19 and he needs to have some kind of plan for independence? That's the question. That said, I'm willing to go so far as to say there are no books that would guarantee you could approach your son in a particular way with words, with words now. I'm going to get to this in a second. With words that would convince him to change. Now, there are probably better and worse ways to influence him, but there's no guarantee. Because if he doesn't want to cooperate in the way you would like him to cooperate, you're going to run into all kinds of resistance no matter how you say it. Now, that said... I'm still getting to the part where I recommend one of my own books. Even though I just told you it probably wouldn't work. That said, there are things you can do. You can raise the rent. You can stop supporting him financially in any way that you are. Who's paying for that smartphone? 
Is he using your car? Why? There's all kinds of things you can do. You washing his clothes? There's a lot of things you can do that might make a difference. Now, he'll either <laughs> he'll either say, I'm out of here because I don't want to put up with your rules, especially since you're putting conditions on me. Or he'll turn around and say, okay, it's better to live here and I'll cooperate the way you want me to. Now, can I recommend a book? Well, in fact, I did recommend a book. It was my second most recent book called Taught by Ten. A psychologist's father learns from his ten children. There were several chapters toward the end when I talked about, as a father, what would happen, and all my, all my children are the age of majority now. They're all grown up. Well, they're adults. Dr. A, don't talk to your children about your children that way. Ah, I'm just teasing. So, what did I do when some of them were 19, 20, 21, and I couldn't get the level of cooperation that I thought was to be expected, at least in our home, from young adults? What did I do? And how did I do it? And... What did I struggle with or not struggle with in doing it? Did I have one or two not take my conditions and have to leave? That's probably the book that I would have recommended. And as a matter of fact, I did. Taught by ten. Because I talked about what I did when they became young adults. And if I believed that they weren't cooperating as young adults should cooperate. That's the book I recommended to this mom. But I didn't have anything in the book that talked about how to better convince my child to act a certain way. They were raised by me for nearly 20 years. They know how we think. They know what we believe. They know our expectations. And I can tell them my expectations now that they are of a certain age. But if they refuse to accept them, um, I'm not real confident in my ability to convince them to accept them. The, the human will of resistance is very strong. And it just blasts through the most reasonable words sometimes. Thank you for joining me here. Dr. Ray, got to go. Walk with God. He'll never ask you to leave. For information on Dr. Ray's presentations, books, and CDs, visit DRA.com and follow him on Facebook and Instagram. The Doctor is In is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.